morning. Okay, uh, we're going to continue on in our Address the Mess series from First and Second Corinthians. Um, okay, i got to give you a brief introduction because these all tie together. I try to do them as quickly as possible, but I'm not making any promises, but I'll do the best I can. Um, so a few weeks ago, we started looking at the biblical definition of love, and I said this time and time again. We're looking at First Corinthians 13, 4 to 8a, and uh, a lot of people look at that as wedding verses, and I've said this time and time again also. They're not anything to do with weddings. It's, it's about... Uh, the depth of God's love, basically, and how we're supposed to share that. So love in verses 4 through 8 is from the Greek word agape. Everybody's heard of that, I'm sure. But it's from the Greek word agape, which means sacrificial and unconditional love. And basically that refers to a love that God is, a love that God shows, and a love that God gives. is described as agape love. Now agape love is what's present in the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is a part of God. And since the Holy Spirit is a part of each one of us, it's that agape love in the Holy Spirit that's influencing us to be able to be obedient uh, and to have success spiritually. So that's what kind of motivates us and, and makes us productive. But we discussed that love is what? It's an action. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that love is an action, and every action love produces should glorify God. If what you're doing doesn't glorify God, whatever that is, it's probably not being found in, the, you know, its basis isn't found in the love of God. But in verse 4, Paul started describing actions that are associated with agape love. Now, understand this. Paul knew that no believer was going to be displaying all these all the time. Okay? Let's so put that out there for all the self-righteous. Because it's impossible. Nobody can, dis- can display all those all the time. But what he was doing was giving us a benchmark. Letting us know, here's what you shoot for, right? As a coach, I don't tell somebody, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to train you to, to bat 200. You know, <laughs> that's not what I'm, I want them to bat the best they possibly can. I set the mark high. This is what Paul was doing. He was setting the mark high uh, as it pertains to love. But he knew that no one was going to be able uh, to do it all the time. Now, we've already covered the, uh, some of these love actions that were described in verse 4. Like, we covered love is patient uh, and love is kind. And I'll try to cover these as quickly as I can. But the Greek word for patient, anybody remember it? <laughs> That's right, it's a really long one. Uh, it's macro, <laughs> it's macrothromeo, and it means to delay. And what it's saying is that love delays the natural reaction to anger and to frustration. Now, patience. <laughs> Have you ever prayed for patience? How'd that work out for you? Listen, this sounds terrible coming from a pastor, but I don't pray for that. Ever. Now, I'm not telling you not to pray. Prayer is good. Just make sure that you are ready when you pray for patience. I remember we went through the book of James. I was preaching about being patient in trials. And I had people come up to me going, would you please shut up? Do you guys remember that? I mean, everything. Everybody was going through trials. When you pray for patience, you better be strapped because it's coming. I'm just saying. He will answer. All right? Now, we covered that, but the word kind, we also covered that, and that's kresio umai in the Greek, and it means to act with kindness and to act with mercy, right? And uh, we also discussed love does not brag and is not arrogant. Okay, we discussed that one, uh, and we discussed love does not act unbecomingly or seek its own. Now, quickly, bragging is an example of outward pride, and it's a sin. Arrogance is a sign of inward pride. It's exercising inward pride. People who are arrogant actually believe what they're bragging about. You see what I mean? So they internally, they believe that they're all that. Okay, now, today we'll discuss uh, love is not provoked. 
uh, and does not take into account a wrong suffered. And I also want to take another look at, uh, at act unbecomingly and does not seek its own. It's funny, uh, you know, in the time span I have, I can't cover them as deep as I want. So you might notice we keep going backward a step or two each week so I can go back and cover a little more. But it's really, really important that we get a chance to look at some of those and go a little bit deeper. So I titled this message, Love Moves On, because one thing about God's love is it has a very short memory. Very short memory. Okay. Some more out just doing that, that intro. I think I'm in bad shape here. Okay, so let's jump in. We're going to be in 13.5, 1 Corinthians 13.5. We're going to revisit last week a little bit. So it says, Love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, and does not take into account a wrong suffering. Okay, so in verses 5 and 6, this is where Paul shifts a little bit. He talks about the positive things love does. You know, love is patient and kind and even jealous. Um, and then in verses 5 and 6, he shifts and he gives four negative descriptions of things that contradict the love he was just speaking of. Things that shouldn't be present in you if you are sharing that kind of love. First of all, he says love is not rude or self-seeking. Love is not rude or self-seeking. It's not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrong. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. That is a tough one, isn't it? Now, be honest. All right, God knows, so don't get all self-righteous on it. Okay, how many people here have held a grudge? Raise your hand. Get your hand up. Lord have mercy. Right, and it when you do, I mean, that is a tough one. I'd love to stand up here and say, oh, I'm Pastor Chris, I've got it all figured out. But that would just be a huge, gigantic lie. That's a tough one. But we'll cover that more as we go. I don't want to get jumping on that right now, but everybody struggles with that one. But it says, love is not provoked, is not taken into account of wrong suffered. That's what it's talking about there. It just means that we don't keep a record of wrong. Now, as I said, I want to revisit this love does not act independently and does not seek its own because all four of these are tied together. And last week, I just didn't have time to go to the last two. But they kind of feed off of each other. So I'm just going to briefly cover that and go a little deeper. So love does not act unbecomingly is basically saying love is not rude or disgraceful. Love is not rude or disgraceful. It's uh, from the Greek word, to act, to act unbecomingly is a phrase that actually comes from one Greek word, and it's askenemoni. And the thing about that word, it's kind of strange, because it means to act shamefully or disgracefully, but in the context it's used, the Greeks are very clear in their sentence structure. You know, we have so many slangs that it's tough sometimes understanding even what somebody's writing, because they use so much slang in so many different ways. The Greeks were pretty poignant. I mean, they were... They were to the point, right? And so the way it was in the context, it meant to act shamefully or disgracefully towards somebody. That's what it meant in the Greek, acting shamefully or disgracefully and directing that to someone. Okay, now, this is only used one other time in all the New Testament, in this context. It's one other time, and that's in 1 Corinthians 7. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's giving some really awkward instructions. You guys remember we went through 7? We had to talk about Remember that? I'm trying to hide it from the college girls over there. I don't think hear that word. But anyway, um, we had to talk about that. It was kind of awkward. So he had to give some awkward advice during that time. Uh, and so he had to give instructions to men who were struggling to stay celibate while being engaged. While being engaged. So, I mean, we are physical human beings. I understand that's a struggle and always has been a struggle. I mean, it got Adam in a lot of trouble, right? But I'm just saying, it, it's always been a struggle, and he wanted to give him some advice on that. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 36. It says, but if any man thinks that he has, that he is acting unbecomingly, there's that phrase, toward his fiancée, 
Now, some of your Bibles might say his virgin daughter. That is a terrible translation. When you break it down to the original context, it means fiance. And when you hear commentators say it can mean one of two things. I'm like, why would it mean your daughter? You know what I mean? I don't get that. But anyway, so I just changed that. But it says, acting unbe- uh, it says but if any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his fiance, uh, if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. Okay? So that can it can be talking to a father, I guess, to his daughter. Awkward-like. But more than likely, it's talking to, uh, to a, a potential husband. Back then, an engagement wasn't like it is now. Right, engagements now are like kicking the tires. I know people who engage five times, you know. But back then, when you were engaged, if you went out with somebody else, it was adultery and punishable by the adultery law. That's how serious they took engagement. So you didn't, you know, go on Christian mingle back then. You made sure it was the right one because it could be bad if it wasn't. But back in that time frame, if to act unbecomingly or to be uh, shameful or disgraceful towards your fiancé would be making advances toward them is what they were talking about. Making advances toward them before you got married. Okay, now, and nowadays, we, nobody thinks of that, that, you know, as serious as it is, but back then, if you did that, if you made an advance at a woman who was even your fiancé, it was considered a huge, huge insult. It was, it was just offensive because you were insulting both the woman's and the family's integrity and decency. You were saying that she was a loose woman, and you were saying that her parents raised her that way. That's what you were saying if you made an advance. And if you were caught doing that, you could be in serious, serious trouble before the courts at that time. Okay, so that was the time he used that. That's the only other time he used that act unbecomingly, so it's always directed at someone. It's not just in general, right? Now, when believers are rude or or act in a way that attacks or insults others, I mean, it's only acting, it's not only acting against the very definition of, of love, which is what it's doing, but it's also a sin. Treating people poorly is a sin. I don't know why Christians don't grab that. You know, Christians, honestly, we've got a bad reputation. I don't know if you guys know that. We've got a bad reputation. We're always judging people and shoving people away and saying one sin's worse than another sin. And listen, people who can think that way have to be sinless. Because I don't know about you, but I look in the mirror and I see a guy that's got a lot of his own sin issues to work out. I don't have time to be judging anybody else. And Here's the way I see it. If we disagree, then I want to be close to you. I want I want the two of us to be close. Because that way, we can have an influence with each other and have a relationship. You know what I mean? But a lot of Christians just push people away, and they think if they don't agree with us, it's okay to be rude to them. If they don't agree with us, it's okay. You know, they deserve it. I see this happen all the time. See, we're supposed to be showing the same love and grace that God shows us to everyone else. And it drives me crazy when Christians write themselves a path to be mean and condescending to people they don't disagree with. I mean, the people they disagree with, rather. That is, it, that is so unbelievably stupid. How in the world would you expect to draw people to Christ if you are selective about who you will draw and who you'll be nice to? I, I, don't, I, don't, under, I don't understand that. It not only poorly represents God and makes believers think that, or unbelievers think that you know, God doesn't change you, but it also makes us look like hypocrites. God like that, I think. Either that or we got a sniper. Right, but you know, it, it makes us look it makes us look like hypocrites. Because everybody knows you sin. I don't know if you realize this, but you can pretend that you're perfect, but the world still knows you sin. Right? I've said this a thousand times. Ride in the car with me. You'll find out. I sin. Right? I it's possible I can have a temporary now and then, you know. 
rarely, depending on how the game's going. But, um, you know, people know that you sin. So when you start attacking people because they're sinful, they're going, seriously, are you Jesus? You sin too. And so it just, it's, it's a terrible testimony. Remember, God saved us despite our sinfulness. So if you really want to be God-like, put your judgment on yourself. You know what I mean? And show people love it, that Christ showed you. Now, love does not seek its own was referring to being selfish or self-absorbed. How many people know somebody? Somebody pops into your mind when you think of selfish and self-absorbed. Raise your hand. Okay, just a few. The rest of you guys are in first hand. But uh, it's pretty common, actually. It's pretty common. It comes from the Greek word zeto, and it means to search earnestly. That's all it means, to search earnestly. Love does not seek its own. Love does not search earnestly. And when it says search earnestly, this means someone who is who is searching earnestly to to, uh, to find reasons to judge, right? And find reasons to lift themselves up by putting other people down. They're always scanning. You know those people that are always scanning? The, the church I was raised in, man, I hope a lot of them don't watch this. I'm in big trouble. But the church I was raised in, they love to look you up. You know the, the up and down look? How many people ever got the up and down look? Raise your hand. You know, I was always going to look at them and go, it's all right, check it, everybody's got to have dreams. You know? No, but I mean, literally, they will, I, I, when I was a kid, I'd walk in, and they would go like this. Before they say anything, I'm like, you like? I don't know, what am I supposed to say? So I decided that I would make it worth their time, and I always wore tore-up jeans and tore-up concert shirts and, you know, fingerless gloves. It was the 80s, give me a break. I had a mullet for crying out loud. But, I mean, I got the up and down. And it just drives me crazy because true love is not supposed to be thinking about yourself. You know what causes problems in marriages? When you have two people that think of themselves more than each other. That's, that's when you have a problem in marriage. Right? When your love, when you try to display love while being self-seeking, it doesn't work. Nobody buys that. Look at Philippians chapter 2. I love how Paul handled this. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, uh, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining maintaining the same what the same love united in spirit intent on one purpose do nothing from what selfish or empty conceit i'll come back to that selfish or empty conceit but with humility of mind regard one another as what more important than yourselves when's the last time a teacher or somebody in this world told you that think of other people before yourself verse four do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Okay? This is a very basic, basic command. Very basic. And what he was trying to combat is people sometimes act loving for selfish reasons, for conceited reasons. Like they'll give something and tell everybody they gave. Man, somebody's jumping in my mind. Lord help me. But they, when they do something, they want to make sure it's on every social media that everybody knows they finally did something you know, gratuitous to someone. You know what I mean? Or if they do something in public, they make sure it's really loud. You know, somebody's, you know, if they see somebody begging alongside the road, sure, I'll give you a hundred bucks. What's a hundred? You know, that's what it's talking about. When you do something good, but you're only doing it to build yourself up and let other people see that you're doing something good, that's what he's talking about there. Right? So basically, love focuses on serving and sacrificing to others more than it focuses on ourselves. And I think the reason so many Christians struggle today is the world has got us deceived into thinking 
that it's all about us. You know what I mean? drive through mentality. I will make an order at the speaker, and God better have my package at the window. Right? That's the way we feel. We look at our, our spiritual lives. We don't even look at those selflessly. We look at what we can get from God. Let me ask you something. When's the last time you prayed and did not ask for something? That's a tough one, isn't it? That means you might have to pray for, are you ready for this? Other people. Right? Other people's problems. You might have to pray for the guy at work you don't like. Right? And like I said, that can be an honest prayer. Lord, you said I had to pray for my enemy, so I'm doing it. You know, but you ever thought, try the next time you pray not to mention yourself. And you'll see how difficult this is to maintain. But it is what it is, right? But when we live a life that puts other people above ourselves, when we sacrifice of ourselves to help other people, it really has an impact for Jesus in their life. It has a huge impact for Jesus in their life. And I think that's so important. But when we allow our negative emotions to take over, these negative ones that Paul's going to be talking about and has talked about, when we allow them to take over, we look nothing like God. And that's why you hear people all the time saying, oh, Christians are just hypocrites. Because we say one thing and do another. Right? When we let our emotions take over us, we act just like everybody else. What is going to show them that we're different if every time we get angry, we blow up? You know, when I worked at McDonald's when I was a kid, cut me some slack, it's the only place to work on my football schedule. But when I worked at McDonald's, no joke, they would, people would come to the window, preachers that I knew, right? Like I needed a reason not go to church, I already wasn't going, but preachers that I knew would absolutely destroy somebody at the drive-thru if they forgot their picture. I mean destroy them and call them names, and I remember sitting back and thinking to myself, I could never go to that church church, you know, and that's just sad, that's what happens when you allow your emotions to take over rather than loving in a way that's considered about it. Now, here's where we get into some of the good stuff, not that the other one wasn't good, but I've been excited about this. Love is not provoked. Let's look at the scripture again. First Corinthians 13, 5. It says, Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffering. Okay, again, the Corinthian people were heavily influenced by the Greco-Roman Empire. And so they, they kind of leaned to enjoying the same thing. Right? Now, the Greco-Roman culture loved to take people to court. They loved, you know, the philosophers. They loved the... You know, the people who are great orators or great speakers, they love those. But they also love power. They love the display of power. And so they felt like taking people to court really displayed power because they thought that, that the legal system was just a way to reveal their great political and legal influence so everyone would look up to them. So they were suing. It was crazy. If you ever study back through history, you won't believe it. But the courts were lying down the block. They were suing people all the time. I mean, they considered their litigation the factor that made them important. So any little thing that happened, I mean, Paul told us in chapter 6, and we'll look at this, that it wasn't even uncommon for brothers to sue each other, for father to sue son, son to sue father. I mean, it was very, very common. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 6, 1. It says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go before the law, uh, to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law court? Do you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters in this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges uh, who are 
of no account in this church. He's basically saying those who are have nothing to do, to do with God, you're going to let them have influence over a godly life. You're going to let them have instruction over a godly life, or a life that's supposed to be guided by God. Uh, it says, I say this to your shame. Uh, it is so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren. He's saying, is, is your church so stupid there's nobody there that can give you spiritual advice? See, Paul was way more harsh than I was. Right? Verse 6, but brother goes, uh, goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is not, uh, it is already a defeat to you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, you do this even to your example your family. Now, can you imagine, can you just imagine suing your dad? Some of you are smiling and shaking your head. I, I don't want to know why. But I couldn't imagine that. I can't imagine my kids suing me, really, because they're not, what are they going to get? You know what I mean? Say, we're suing our dad. Okay, I'll give you 30% of my bills, because that's all I got. Yeah, but can you imagine, can you imagine Kevin getting a letter in the mail saying, yeah, Mason Franks has decided to take you to court. He thinks you kept the mower he should have. I mean, this is what was going on back then. That's the kind of stuff that was happening. Stupid lawsuits that really didn't even have any, any bearing. They were just doing it for the power because they were so worried about themselves, they wouldn't worry about anyone else. Now, here's another thing. This is going to be a tough one. The Apostle Paul, now first of all, he was mortified about those legal cases, and so he addressed that. But when he said that love is not provoked, he was actually being very specific because he meant love is not easily stimulated to anger. Okay, let's have a moment of compassion. Is there a time that you are easily stimulated to anger? Raise your hand if you have that time in your life. There you go, there you go. I just wanted to get that out before I start preaching on this, you know, start judging people like, oh, those people. Yeah, you're those people. Okay, there's all something, there's always something in our lives that stimulates us quickly to anger. Once again, what do you think mine is? Driving. I don't know why. I really, I should probably not have a license. I'm just going to say it, you know, because I've caused a lot of people to sin by my driving. Oh, I should I share this? I probably shouldn't. The other day I was being tailgated. And this is wrong, children. Don't do this at home. So I move over. He doesn't pass. Still tailgating me. Now, I shouldn't worry. Jenny always says, what do you care? They're behind you. I'm like, but I got a mirror. You know, God put that mirror there. For me to see that, no. And so, kept coming up on me, kept coming up on me, and finally I said, I'm sick of this, so I stomped it. And I was laughing because he was in my rear view, and I looked down, I was doing 110. And I thought, I will be in prison if I get pulled over. You know what I mean? So, why did I let that aggravate me? I don't know. I don't even know why I told you. But, all of us have something in our lives that allows us to be quickly stimulated. Mine is tailgating. And four-way stops. I'm not even going to preach on that right now. But all of us have things that easily stimulate us to anger. And one of the greatest enemies of love and grace is anger. It's just one of the greatest enemies of love and grace. But listen to what James says, James 1.19. He says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be what? Quick to hear and... Ouch. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and... Oh, and slow to anger. Here's the big one, verse 20. For the anger of man does not what? 
achieve the righteousness of God. Listen, I don't know if you've ever heard this argument. The people will come up and they'll say, they'll be mad at somebody and they'll say, that's all right because they're in sin. I'm so okay for me to be mad at them. It's usually another church that they disagree with. So they get in these big arguments over doctrine like God's pleased with that. You know what I mean? And when you say, why are you getting upset? You're not getting anywhere if you're both upset. Well, it's okay if you get ready for this one. They say, it's a righteous anger. For the anger of man does not achieve what? The righteousness of God. I struggle with that being the righteous anger. You know what I mean? It's unbelievable how many people will allow themselves to get sucked into anger. Listen, here's how you know you're saying something wrong when you're angry. If your lips are moving. Because the Bible says we don't do anything righteous while we're angry. We just don't. I mean, are your godliest moments when you're in an argument with somebody? I mean, it's, I don't understand why we don't see this. Right? And Satan, if he knows you're easily provoked to anger, believe me, he's going to exploit that. Believe me, he's going to exploit that. I always tell my wife, I, I shouldn't have said that out loud, now he knows. You know, and what I say that for is, you know, the devil can't read your mind. I don't know if you knew that. That's all that hocus pocus is on TV. He's not God. Right? But he can, people say, well, how does he know how to tempt us? Because he never shut up. He says, well, he knows how to tempt us. And we act, our actions speak our mind too often and too quickly. Right? And so sometimes I'll say something. I hate changing a tire. What do you think is going to happen the next few days? Flat tires, man. I'm telling It's January. He'll hold that one until January on me. You know what I mean? And so it's, it, it cracks me up because when he knows you're easily provoked to anger, he provokes you to anger. Because those who are easily provoked to anger are also easily distracted. When you're angry, you're not focusing on serving. Right? He knows that. And so when you're allowing yourself to be angry and spiritually distracted, you're leaving yourself vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And oh, I could preach on that forever. But I, have you ever noticed that the person you don't want to be around that makes you the maddest, you run into them everywhere? You ever notice that? You could go to some obscure store in Bremen, Indiana. Bam! There he is. You know what I mean? If he knows you're easy to tick off, he's going to try to take you off. See, the, the Corinthians, the, their litigious attitude proved that they had allowed themselves to be angry too quickly, and they had uh, allowed themselves to just be spiritually distracted, right? They should have been able to work out their problems with the people in the church and with the Word of God. That should have been all they needed, but they wanted to look important, right? And because they were so easily, you know, easily provoked, they just pursued worldly guidance more than, than spiritual guidance. And when you break it down, the worldly guidance is the same all the time. Get revenge. You ever hear that? You can't let him get away with that. You ever hear that one? How about this one? You know, what comes around, goes around. Here's one of my favorites. Oh, that's just karma. Yeah, let's pull Eastern mysticism in, why don't we as Christians? There we go. You know, that's karma. I'm telling you, honestly, it, it drives me crazy. You can tell when someone's under the influence of God or under the influence of the world. Because if you're under the influence of God, you're not going to be going out trying to set traps for those that you feel like you owe one to. All right? That's how the world does. Now, had they controlled their tempers, they probably would have saved themselves a lot of grief, a lot of money, and I know they would have saved the church a great deal of embarrassment and shame. Now, when believers allow themselves to be easily angered, it reveals you're lacking peace. Okay? When I meet that Christian who is always arguing, who is always mad at somebody, who is always upset about the world, He's always ranting on social media, you know, and all those long posts that I don't read. When I see those people, 
I realize they're lacking peace in their life. Something else is wrong. Right? What do we have to make us so angry? I had somebody talk to me the other day, and it kind of, it's funny, it's almost like God knew I was going to preach this 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 weekend. I got a call, and someone said, you know, can you answer a question for me? Me and another person are are, are wondering. Okay. They said, um, so we've both been praying a lot so that we could get these problems handled. You know, one was relational, and another one was financial, and they said, we've been praying and praying and praying, and it just seems like God isn't hearing us. I don't want to give up on him. What do you think I should do? And it's funny how God will put an answer in your mind before you even know that it's there. And I said, let me ask you something. I said, if if all you got from God was delivered from hell, if that's the only thing he ever did for you, would it be worth serving? And she goes, I hate you. She's a friend. I'm like, well, it's pleasant that you're still loving. But anyway, she goes, yes, it would still be worth serving. I said, so why is it that you get mad at him when he, gives, when he doesn't give you anything else? Look at the lives of the apostles. They weren't going to casinos and going on vacations. You know what I mean? They were talking, it was a rough life. It was a rough life. God never said the world's going to be full of roses. Right? He never said that. But he did say that if he goes away, he will come again and take us to where he is. And if that's all he ever did for me, that's enough. I don't need the 75 years I'm supposed to live here to be perfect. Because I, I know my eternity is. That means a lot to me. That means a ton to me. But when you are always angry and always upset, it shows that you're lacking, you know, peace. And peace only comes from studying, being instructed in, and applying God's Word. That's where it comes from. You're not going to have peace of God without talking to God. You talk to Him through prayer, He speaks to you through the Scriptures. The burning bush deal is over. Okay? That's how He speaks to us. And if you're not doing those things, you're not going to get close enough to Him to have peace. That's where we find our peace. Because, listen, the people who are fully dependent on God understand something about God. They understand that He's all-powerful. And they understand that when they surrender to Him, there's nothing impossible to them. They understand God's power. Those people have peace. Those people have peace because they know God has it. God's got it under control. Right? But those those who don't, who are quick to get angry... They never have peace in their lives because they're never giving God a chance to bring it there. If you just have the world influencing you, peace is going to disappear, right? Here's what our first reaction to anger should be, and believe me, I struggle with this too. Okay, I'm not saying this to be self-righteous, but our first reaction to anger should be to pray about it. Have you ever prayed about something you're really angry about, and then once you're done praying, you're thinking, maybe I really shouldn't have been angry. You ever done that? What's that like? I, I never have. No, I'm just kidding. No, that, I mean, sometimes when you pray, God's going, really, Chris, really? He was tailgating you? That made your whole day bad? That's why you snipped at your wife? That's why you've been grumpy? He was tailgating you? Oh, well, you shouldn't be happy that you have eternal life. After all, you were just tailgated. You know what I mean? You pray about it, you think, okay, I'm stupid. I get it. You know what I mean? That's, sometimes we need to remember our first reaction should be to talk it over with God. Because listen, when you do talk it over with God, I promise you the peace will come. Look at this, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit... Now, does that contradict anger and bitterness? Okay, it says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for... Anybody here anxious for nothing? 
That's a tough one, isn't it? He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, notice the, the contrasting there, anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Okay, so he's saying, first of all, first and foremost, pray. Verse 7 says, And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds because you. I, I love that. I love that verse. I love that because that lays it out as clear as it can be. Go to God before the enemy has time to get you all frustrated and angry and make you do something even more stupid. Did you ever notice when you get angry you make a bad situation worse? Husbands, let me ask you something. Your anger ever made you say something you really wish you hadn't said? <laughs> you they're going, nope. <laughs> Me either. But I've heard of people who have that problem. Dang it. But, yeah, I'm telling you, sometimes that anger keeps us from having the peace we should have. So whether you realize it or not, here's the important thing. People are watching us. Not just Christian people, the world is watching us. And the way we react to challenges and adversity speaks to the strength of our faith. If we can handle it saying God has it, they understand how powerful our faith is. But if every problem, every challenge brings us to our knees, I mean, think about it. What are they saying? Well, why do I need Jesus then? I have that issue my, on my own. I don't need Jesus to have that problem. Right? Because here's the thing. The easily provoked, people who are easily provoked, hinder themselves from, from actually achieving any kind of, of best in their life. And the sad thing is, it'd be, it'd be different if someone who's like that pairs off by themselves. But usually those people spread it to everybody else. You know what I mean? I can't stand seeing the kid that, that will walk into the dugout and their terrible attitude destroys the whole dugout. It's the same thing here. If you allow your life to be ruled by anger and, and being easily provoked, I'm telling you, it's going to spread like cancer. Now, lastly, let's talk about does not hold grudges. Who have been waiting to preach on this? Lord, let's see if i got time. First uh, Corinthians 13, 5 again, love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account what? Let's read that again. Love does not... The rhythm needs work. Okay? Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Okay, now here's an interesting but hypocritical fact about most, if not all, believers. Okay? We desire God's love and mercy when we screw up. You ever notice that? When we screw up, we want God's love and and mercy. But when other people screw up, we want the wrath and judgment of God to rain down like fire and brimstone on them, don't we? Ironic and hypocritic, uh, hypocr uh, being hypocritical at the same time. Also, when we do or say something offensive, we just say, oops, I misspoke. It was a mistake. But when somebody else does something that's offensive, we see it as a cold and calculated attack on a malicious person. And instead of saying, oh, maybe I should stop for a second and see if they really meant what I think they meant. Instead, we are like, God, where are you at? Where are you at? Why aren't you bringing wrath down on him? See the difference? How hypocritical that is? And it's ironic when believers are so quick to be angry and so quick to not forgive, when the crux of Christianity is based on love, grace, and forgiveness. Love, grace, and forgiveness is the crux of Christianity. And I don't know, and God gave us the perfect example of all three of those. And yet we still stray from it. Look at this. Ephesians 4.31. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, what? Forgiving each other, uh, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So that being said, when we hold a grudge, we are willfully violating all of the cruxes of Christianity. Holding a grudge is not loving, it's not gracious, and it's certainly not forgiving. It's certainly not forgiving. And when we do that, you are willfully saying, I refuse to follow your commands, God. I refuse to follow the very basic commands of faith. I refuse. And by doing that, we're just inviting discipline in our life. And I'm telling you, if you haven't been disciplined by God, you must have only been saved an hour. Because it does happen. Listen, Hebrews 12, 6. says, For those whom the Lord loves, He, he disciplines, and He scourges every son that He receives. You know what that means? Whoops them. That's what that means, right? It's ironic, you know, how clever the enemy is and how easily we're deceived by it. Because by being easily provoked, we're simply surrendering to our sinful emotions. And when our sinful emotions take over, we do things that we're going to regret. And then we end up in discipline with God. So now we're mad at other people and God mad at us. And we fell for that. Unbelievable that we fall for that. Right? I don't understand. When you refuse to forgive somebody, when you hold grudges, you know who's imprisoned by that? You. Have you ever noticed that you could be holding a grudge against somebody and they're living life great? They're not even thinking about you. And you've allowed them now to not only annoy you, but to imprison you to anger and bitterness and to pull you away from your God. That's what happens when you hold grudges. You're the one that's imprisoned and they walk free. You know, now think about this for a second. When you struggle forgiving someone you feel like is, you know, giving you a perceived injustice. Think about this. Before you start holding a grudge, remember how often do you cry out to God for His forgiveness? I don't know about you, with me, it's a lot. It's a lot. I find myself crying out for God's forgiveness. So before you hold a grudge, say, how do I want God to respond to my sin? When I'm calling for forgiveness, do I want Him to treat me the way I'm about to treat this man, this woman? Is that his children? You know what I mean? Do I want God to treat me like I'm about to treat them? Think about that, because that will humble you really, really quickly. Listen, do you really want God to hold you to the same standard you hold other people to when it comes to forgiveness and grudges? Do you really want Him to hold you to that standard? Because that's exactly what He does. Look at Matthew 6, 14 and 15. This is Jesus speaking. He says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also what? Forgive you. But, if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not Forgive your transgressions. I think it's pretty plain. You know what he's saying? He's talking to believers here, first of all. And he's saying, listen, when you make a mistake and you come wanting to ask for my forgiveness, understand this. You have no right to go to God and ask Him to forgive you if you're holding a grudge against somebody else. You're saying, God, I believe in forgiveness except for that one. You see what I mean? And, you know, if you could audibly hear him, he'd be saying, oh, no. No, you go make it right with them, then talk to me. Right? You can't go around spreading dissension and ask me to bless you when, you when you sin. You need to go make that right. That's what it's talking about there. Jesus isn't going to bless people who can't show the most basic form of love. Now, remember when I said love is an action? Remember I said that we should love others the way God loves us? Well, I mean, forgiveness is based on grace, and grace and forgiveness are the foundations of our faith. I'm really not asking you to do more than God's been able to do already. Right? So at the end of the day, and I'll close with this, Remember this, anger imprisons us, but love gives us the ability to move on. Love gives us the ability to move on. And, and Let me define one more thing before I close our life. Do you know what forgiveness is? It's not 
oh, you know, Michelle busted the windows out of my car, so every time I see her, I'm not even going to remember that because I'm godly. That's not how that works. The definition of forgiveness is to treat someone, notice I said treat, to treat someone as if they've never harmed you. Because God knew we would be hypocrites. We said, oh yeah, I forget it. You cannot forget it. I'm sorry, if you say you can forgive and forget, you're a liar. Or you have Alzheimer's. Because I'm telling you, you never forget. You don't forget. But you can treat them. And here's what happens. The more you treat them like they haven't offended you, the more you do start to forget the pain. You may not forget that it happens with pain, humiliation. It starts to evaporate because you're covering it with the love of God. Moving on. That's what that you see. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you to please bow your head. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation briefly. We don't ask people to come down front. I just want to know if there's someone here who needs prayer while your head's bowed. If just make contact with bless those people. You can raise your hand. You can make eye contact with me. And I am going to pray with you. Bless those people. And I really do. You know, I know it sounds like a Christianese type thing to say, but I really do pray for the people. Bless those people. And those who are watching, listening online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But believers, as I'm preparing this message, I'm thinking to myself, my God, how easily has the enemy surrounded us with things that provoke us, with people that we get angry with and hold grudges against? I mean, it's all around us. He has an amazing system in place to destroy us. But you know, we have a greater system in place, the creator of the universe. And he can get us through those things if we just give him a chance. It's not that God won't help you forgive. You're not letting him help you forgive. You're not letting him help you love. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your love and your mercy and especially your grace. I know, God, I am not good enough. I never will be good enough. The only reason I know I'm going to heaven is because I believed in what Jesus did for my eternal life. When I couldn't be righteous, He was righteous on my behalf. And I know, God, one day when I get into heaven, it won't be me that you see. It'll be the blood of your Son that's been applied to my sin. That's what's going to gain me up. I thank you so much that you love me enough to make it possible for someone like me to go. I can't understand that love, and I'm so thankful it exists. So if there's someone here who doesn't know you or watching or listening, remind them that it doesn't matter what they've done, who they are, what people think of them, what their reputation is. If they can believe that what Jesus did is enough to guarantee their eternal life, your word promises they'll have it. And then you can clean out the things you want to clean out. Tonight. And I pray if someone makes that decision, they share that with us so we can walk them in their journey. So for those of us who are believers, God, let us remember the day you forgave us. The day you wiped our slate clean because of the work of your son. Give us the same kind of love, if, if for no other reason out of pure gratitude for your mercy with us. Give us that kind of love and forgiveness so that we can be set free from all these traps and we keep setting free. We just pray, God, as we leave here, you would keep us safe. And if you don't receive to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you the praise, honor, and glory to your Lord.